it was just one of those like yep this is the field work where we basically get lost get eaten by mosquitoes and get caught out in a in a rainstorm in the middle of the everglades This is Ecological Adventures, the official podcast of the UF IFAS Department of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation. I'm Rhett Barker. Ecologists go from their own backyards to the edges of the earth in pursuit of knowledge. Dealing with discomfort, sometimes dangerous animals, and unpredictable situations, they're rewarded with adventure and fascinating insights into the workings of the planet's life. Today's guest is Katie Haas, a postdoc at Montana State University and a WEC alum. She's studying bats and white-nose syndrome, a disease that's sweeping caves across the country. We'll start out with the usual story and then talk to her about her research. What's an unexpected experience you've had because of your work? Well, this wasn't actually, this might get me in trouble, but this wasn't actually my field work. It was when I was at UF and I was helping a friend with some work in Payne's Prairie, actually, and they had field cameras out across Payne's Prairie, and we were just going and helping because the person who put them out was out of the country, and we needed to switch the batteries and switch the SD cards, and we ended up getting a little lost, which, you know, we knew we were relative to where we needed to be, but it wasn't, you know, we weren't actually where we needed to be, and we ended up finding out that we were on the wrong side of one of the canals in Payne's Prairie, and we had already hiked, like, four or five miles, and so... Instead of hiking four or five miles back and then four or five miles back the other way, we decided to swim across the canal in Payne's Prairie, which if you've ever been to Payne's Prairie, is full of alligators. <laughs> so we basically swam across this canal. We didn't see any alligators. We were fine. We ran into a ranger, and he basically was like, what are you doing? This is not very smart. And later, like a year or two later, I was talking to a new graduate student at UF, and I was just telling her about this, you know, preserve. And I made a joke about how oh, that one time we seen across the the canal of alligators and she was just like wide eyes and she realized because she had just been at this preserve and talking to a ranger and he told her about the story and so we are kind of famous <laughs> in Prairie because we're the stupid grad wildlife graduate students that swim across a alligator infested canal. You've also worked with manatees and wolves. Do you have any stories from those experiences? So I did some of my field work in the Everglades and we I was going out and so my PhD was focused on like movement behavior and habitat use of manatees in response to temperature and so Manatees are cold-stressed individuals, and when they get cold-stressed and they move into these kind of warm-water thermal refugias, which are mostly like warm-water springs, like Crystal River, etc. And so in the Everglades, there are these small pockets of warm water throughout the inland kind of water system. And so I was going out in the backwaters, putting out temperature sensors to kind of just measure the quality and reliability of these habitat sites. So I can't go in the backcountry by myself because it's just dangerous. And so I went with a hydrologist who just had worked in the Everglades for 20-some years. He knew the backwaters really well. And as we were packing up the boat to go out, we were in the, the research center in Gainesville packing up stuff. And he was looking all over for a spot, which is kind of like a spotlight. You plug into the boat and you have a huge light. And, you know, I was like, this isn't really necessary. We're not going out at night. But he's like, no, we need a spotlight. We need a spotlight. I'm like, okay. Glad we had a spotlight because we ended up not getting lost, but 
we ended up spending a long time out in the backwaters putting out these sensors just because things never work well when sometimes when you're first going out and doing field work and we ended up being in the Everglades after sunset which is kind of dangerous and luckily we made it out into the Gulf of Mexico where there's if you've ever been in any kind of ocean system you have navigator beacons which are just like green or red floats in the ocean and we ended up using the spotlight because they're reflective and using the spotlight basically to get to a beacon and then get to the next beacon and then get to the next beacon just so we could actually get back to the dock to get in because it was completely dark you couldn't see anything and as we were pulling in the skies opened up and started pouring and it was just one of those like Yep, this is the field work where we basically get lost, get eaten by mosquitoes, and get caught out in a in a rainstorm in the middle of the Everglades. So that was fun. My mom loved that story. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's that's exactly what field work's like. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had like I've been so when I did my I did a, before I started my PhD after my master's I worked for the Rocky Mountain Science Center in Bozeman and did field work in West Yellowstone and Yellowstone doing wolf stuff. And one of the things I did was I was out at the Grizzly Wolf Discovery Center, which is in West Yellowstone, and we were trying to understand the energetic effects of mange, which is like scabies basically in wild wolves. And what happens is they lose hair, so they have this hair loss that causes them to freeze. And so I was going to the Grizzly Wolf Discovery Center because we shaved patches on them basically to represent hair loss. And I was using this really cool $100,000 army grade thermal imaging camera to measure heat loss. And I would go out at night because you can't have solar radiation kind of altering what you're measuring and so I would go into West Yellowstone and I was trying to get very cold temperatures and so I'd go out when it was like negative 30 degrees Celsius this is a great field work (laughs) so I moved to Florida because I was over this and I basically had all my equipment I was on myself because I was in a captive facility I wasn't in the field it wasn't really dangerous and it was like 4 a.m. and I pulled all my equipment in in the field truck and I needed to drive back to Bozeman which was about two hours away and I needed to get gas because I'd been running my car all night so I could stay warm because it was negative 30 degrees and my eyelashes were frozen. It was kind of intense. And I get to the gas station and my gas cap is frozen. And I was just like, okay, so this isn't great. I need gas to get home. I need gas to stay warm. This could be a really bad situation. And luckily I had a bunch of hot hands, you know, those little things that, you know, warm up. And I shoved them in the gas cap and waited a half an hour for it to unfreeze enough for me to get gas but it was uh that was a little bit scary for that moment because there was nowhere and there was no one around to help me so that was great (laughs) that's wild the the temperature stuff out here is crazy there's so many like weird things that can happen yeah yeah it's one of those things i mean the work that we do now we're out at night too and last this past winter it was i think the high the one day was uh, like negative 10 degrees and it was just like what are we doing out here like this isn't this isn't normal but yeah i mean at that same project with the wolf project i had a computer screen that recorded everything and it was so cold that the led screen stopped working and so i actually had to buy a heating pad that i had to tape to the computer to like keep it warm enough so i could actually see what i was doing it was just like why am i doing this that's insane <laughs> And that's why I moved to Florida, because I was kind of, I needed a break from the cold. Because everything <laughs> I've ever done has been winter field work in 
Syracuse, New York, or Maine, or, you know, Montana, so I was like, I need to move to Florida. What are you doing now? So I'm a postdoc at MSU. I work on a big multi-university project where we're trying to predict the bioenergetic effects of white nose syndrome in western bat species. What is bioenergetics? So basically it's kind of trying to look at you know how animals use energy and so how that changes their behavior and so primarily what I'm interested in is looking at environmental conditions and how that impacts the energetics and so you think about for instance animals that are you know being impacted by climate change a lot of it can be down to thermal ecology and how they interact with temperature and how temperature impacts their behavior in terms of using energy and gathering energy etc and so with the bats the way that the disease actually impacts them is it disrupts their hibernation and so they hibernate during the winter because it's really cold and so they drop their basically drop their metabolic rate and body temperature down to very low levels so they expend very little energy and so the disease actually causes them to arouse from hibernation and if you think about like being out in a environment that's like on average eight degrees celsius and if you drop your body temperature to be at eight degrees you're actually not spending a lot of energy to kind of you're you're not losing any heat but if you have to arouse from hibernation, you're bringing your body temperature back up to normal, which is about 39 degrees Celsius. Difference in temperature is huge in terms of heat loss. And so bats expend a lot of energy when they have this disease and they end up starving to death, unfortunately, during hibernation. And so we're trying to basically understand the mechanism of how the disease impacts the bats and then take that and model it and see how populations will respond as the disease comes west as well as how climate change may impact these cave systems that bats reside in during the winter. Okay. I guess I should ask you, what's the broad story of white-nose syndrome? Like, when did it appear and what's happening with it? Yeah, so basically, it was first discovered in 2006 in a cave near Albany, New York, and They've actually traced it back to, it's a fungus, it's phyllet, oh god, I can never pronounce it, it's pseudo-gymnastic destructins, and it's basically a fungus that came from Europe and Asia, and so it is present in Europe and Asian bat populations, but it doesn't seem to have the devastating effects, and I think it's because this fungus was present in these populations millennia ago, so these bats have co-evolved to survive the fungus and it does affect them a little bit but it doesn't like kill them off as it does in the u.s and so it was first discovered in 2006 when basically i said 97 percent of little brown which is like the most used to be the most common bat in the eastern united states populations were just decimated and so what happens is the fungus once it reaches a, a cave or a hibernacula where the bats hibernate during the winter it can be spread by bat-to-bat contact it can be spread in the, the you know the dirt of the cave and so therefore it's easily spread by humans and eastern caves are well known and they're well traveled i can see it being very easy for it to have spread and so before they realized what was happening now we do a lot of decontamination every time we go into a cave so that we can't you know try to prevent the fungus from being spread 
And so in the last 12 years, it's I think they've estimated over 5 million bats have died. I mean, that, that number is pretty outdated, but it, it's over that. And it's in 11 bat species in 37 states and seven Canadian provinces. I mean, it's spreading fairly quickly now. It just, since I've been on this project, since 2016, it's come into like seven or eight new states in the West. And so it's it's just... It's just a matter of time before it's in every state, and then it's just there. But what it, what happens is, you know, so it's in these caves during hibernation, and like I said, bats go into hibernation to, you know, save energy, and it disrupts their physiology and their behavior during hibernation, and then it causes them to, to unfortunately starve to death. And so the big picture is that this is probably the most devastating mammalian disease we've ever seen, and... There's nothing, you know, there's been a lot of research in terms of mitigation of the fungus, trying to kill the fungus, trying to help the bats with medication, basically, and it's just kind of one of these things that we're still we're still working on it. But I guess a good news is that the populations that have, you know, it's been around for 12 years, so now they're slowly seeing some rebounding effects. And so they think what happens is that it's this physiological response and certain bats are just have an, some adaptation to survive the fungus. And because of that, if those bats are able to reproduce, we got this potential rescue effect happening. And so the, what's happening is I think the populations, they used to be a lot larger, but they're still there. They're just a lot smaller than we used to see. So it's not completely useless to, to think that these populations are going to be extinct they're just going to be a lot smaller than you know you go into a cave and there'd be a hundred thousand bats and now maybe there's like ten thousand so they're still there it's just not as big as we used to see a lot of people ask well why do we care because bats are really good pesticides and so agricultural industries are going to feel the effects i think the number has been in the i think bats save like billions of dollars for the agricultural industry because they don't have to use pesticides because bats eat more than just mosquitoes that's kind of like a big deal and they also not the bats we have here but bats in general pollinate other species if they're frugivorous bats etc and so they're a huge part of the ecosystem That's all for today. Thanks to Dr. Katie Haas for coming on the show and sharing her stories and research. And thanks to Dr. Turtle for providing the awesome podcast background music. You can find more of their music in the link in the description. Until next time, thanks for listening.